Welcome to Ayurveda 101 with Mappy, easy Ayurveda for today's complex world. We're here to help you navigate the ancient science of Ayurveda, India's natural wellness system, so you can feel your healthiest, happiest, and most empowered every single day. We're hosted by Maharishi Ayurveda, America's first and oldest Ayurveda company. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice, so always check with your doctor before starting a new regimen. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Episode 9 of Ayurveda 101 with Moppy. I'm your host, Dr. Shankari Wegman. I'm a teacher of Transcendental Meditation, and I've been practicing Marshi Ayurveda both for myself and in the clinic for over 20 years. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the pillars of good health in Ayurveda, sleep. It's estimated that 50 to 70 million Americans of all ages experience sleep-related problems. And getting a good night's rest is so integral to feeling your best. It's part of our rest and repair cycle. If you sleep poorly, it can set the tone for the next day and impact everything from your cognitive performance to digestion, food choices, energy levels, relationships, career, everything. And the opposite is also true. A good night's sleep sets you up for success. And that's why sleep is such a key area of focus in Ayurveda. As you might remember from our previous podcasts, the three doshas, vata, pitta, and kapha dosha, are enlivened at different times during the day. Vata dosha from 2 to 6 in the morning and 2 to 6 in the afternoon. Pitta from 10 to 2 in the middle of the day and 10 to 2 in the middle of the night and kapha from 6 to 10 in the morning and 6 to 10 in the evening. And this is why Ayurveda recommends that we go to sleep before 10 p.m., that by 9.30 we're getting ready for bed because we're sleeping in that kapha time of night and bringing those qualities of heaviness and more solidity into our sleep. So knowing the functions and qualities of the different doshas allows us to know when the optimal times are for us to maximize these different activities. And so not only when to sleep, but also how to stay asleep. And so for today's topic on the science behind sleep, I can think of no one better than to chat with Dr. Fred Travis. Dr. Travis was born in New York, and he went to college at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, and went on to receive his master's and Ph.D. in psychology from Marshi International University in 1988. And during his postdoc research, he deeply investigated the science of sleep with Erwin Feinberg at the VA in Martinez, California. After his work exploring brain changes during sleep, he returned to Marshi International University to become a director of the Brain Consciousness and Cognition Center, where he continues to this day. He is a professor of Marshi Vedic Science, chair of the Department of Marshi Vedic Science, and dean of the graduate school. Welcome, Dr. Travis. Thank you, Shankari. It's really a joy to be here. When you mentioned Erwin Feinberg and my postdoc in sleep research. I was thinking back to those days when you conduct sleep research, you stay awake while your subjects are sleeping. They have electrodes on, record brain waves. You have to watch the EEG signature, make sure everything is okay. So there's a lot of time to think. And one thing I thought about a lot is, why do we sleep? Why do we spend (laughs) one third of our life 
eyes closed under the covers. Yes, and well, how did your research answer this question? This is a great question. <laughs> I actually only partially answered it. Mm-hmm. We're looking at brain waves, and brain waves allow you to chart the depth of sleep. People usually have four or five what are called sleep cycles. You begin to sleep a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, very deep. When you're sleeping very deep, you see these delta waves. It's a one cycle per second EEG. And then you dream. That's one sleep cycle. And so what we notice is that the length of the delta activity was longer. If, for instance, you missed sleep the night before, that period is longer. And other research is suggesting that that period during sleep is when you're actually getting the restoration of sleep. Wow. Okay. So what is the latest research saying? You've spent a lot of time studying what happens in the brain when we sleep. And I understand from your writings that when we sleep at night, the brain sort of flushes itself out as part of the rest and repair mechanisms. Why is this nightly activity so important? Thank you, Shankri. That's the latest finding. During the day, we're using and reusing neurotransmitters, proteins, neurotransporters, and they break down. Every time the cell fires, there's this dynamic in the space between one neuron and another, and then the cell recycles those elements that are used. And the cell, the brain cell, typically fires 200,000 times a day. So 200,000 times a day, it's going through this process, and the molecules it uses break down. And what science is calling it is sleep dirt. Mm. (laughs) It's such a great term. What it is, it's most of it, it's just that. It's dirt. It's inert molecules that are broken down. They're no longer able to do their function. Some of this is neurotoxic. Some of it is beta amyloid having to do with Alzheimer's. During the day, the brain produces about seven grams of sleep dirt. To give you a picture of this, imagine a teaspoon heaping, and that's seven grams. Hmm. Now, this isn't due to stress. It's not due to dysfunction. It's just due to that we have a relative structure using relative molecules. And what the research is showing is that during sleep, especially delta sleep, this deepest part of sleep, the structural elements around the brain cells become closer together. They constrict. And what this does, it allows greater space to be around the neuron itself. And what this does is it pulls the cerebral spinal fluid through the brain across the neurons, and it actually washes out the sleep dirt. This is the second part of what sleep is doing, that it's taking care of what has been the activity during the day. It's something we call sleep pressure. You know, the longer you're awake, the more tired you get. You don't need science to tell you this. Some of why we feel we're getting tired is the sleep dirt is building up, and it's beginning to slow down the whole brain processing. Hmm. So is this sleep pressure that you mentioned, is that one of the main drivers of why we sleep? It is one of the major drivers. Another point that contributes to sleep pressure is every time you self-fires, it needs energy. It breaks down a molecule, an energy molecule. It's a adenotriphosphate diphosphate molecule. So every time a cell fires and this molecule is broken up for energy, the adenosine is floating around the cell, and every cell has lots of receptors for adenosine. The adenosine sits in those receptors, and it slows it down. So this is the story of the brain building up sleep pressure just from the longer we're awake. But something else is happening, and this is a second factor, which is circadian rhythms. Our body has a natural 24-hour rhythm. What the latest research shows is during delta sleep, these deepest parts of sleep, the structural elements within which the neurons are embedded 
they actually constrict and it creates a larger space around the neuron. And what this does is it naturally pulls the cerebral spinal fluid across the neuron and washes out the sleep dirt. So this is one aspect of sleep and this is what's leading to something called sleep pressure. The longer we're awake, the more tired we're feeling. So is this sleep pressure that you mentioned the only thing that's driving sleep? Very insightful questions, Shankri. <laughs> they find there's actually two factors. Sleep pressure is one. It's just what's naturally develops over the day. The second is circadian rhythms. The body has natural 24-hour cycle, where beginning about 3 or 4 in the morning, metabolism starts to speed up. 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning, body's metabolism is higher. You're very alert. You're very awake. It gets to its upper level at about noon. Interestingly, it goes down a bit, about 2 or 3. That's siesta time. It goes up again for early evening. And then the body metabolism decreases from about 9.30 to midnight. And this natural rising and flowing of wakefulness is interacting with sleep pressure. And these two together help to explain why we feel tired. And it helps to explain why we go to sleep. You know, that's really fascinating, Dr. Travis, because it's really in line with Ayurveda. Ayurveda recommends that we go to sleep before 10 because then we can bring the qualities of kapha into our sleep. Kapha is more enlivened between 6 to 10 at night, and then from 10 to 2, that's when pitta is more enlivened. So the qualities of kapha are more heavy, solid. So going to bed before 10, we're bringing those qualities into our sleep. And what you mentioned is that what research is showing is that the circadian rhythms indicate there's a decrease of activity right around 9.30. Can you just speak to that point? It's really a brilliant point of the match of ancient science with modern science. As physiology is beginning to become less awake, less alert, this is happening in kapha time, and that direction is continuing throughout the next four or five hours. And what's intriguing is the 10 to 2 is pitta time, which is processing metabolism. That's important during the day to digest our food. At night, what we're doing is we're metabolizing our experiences. Yes, this is happening in terms of washing out of sleep dirt, but what is also happening is the memories throughout the day are being stabilized, are being reorganized. You're taking the daily activity and you're putting it into a larger context. And so allowing yourself to be asleep at this pit to time allows that internal metabolism to be most effective. Oh, it's really beautiful. It's just kind of, you know, going in line with the cycles of nature and seeing the correlations with Ayurveda. It's really amazing. So, Dr. Travis, you've done extensive research on meditation, specifically transcendental meditation or TM, and sleep. Can you talk a little bit about the value and benefits of both? Can you just speak a little bit about your findings that are comparing and contrasting these two different areas, meditation and sleep? Thank you, Shankari. This is such an important point to thoroughly understand because sleep and TM practice give you different things. Sleep gives you rest, decreasing metabolism, cleaning out sleep dirt. TM doesn't give you rest. It gives you restful alertness. Another way to put it, it gives you alertness, but it's a special type of alertness. It's restful alertness. And this can be seen in blood flow studies, I think, quite clearly. During sleep, blood flow is decreasing to all parts of the brain. It's about 20%. And this makes sense because you're less involved with the outside world. You're not thinking. You're not planning. You're not acting. The whole body is settling down. And in that 
deep rest, this whole process of cleaning out of sleep dirt and dealing with the neural housekeeping of a days of activity are taken care of. Now, what's happening with TM practice? It's a whole different blood flow pattern. That is, we do see decreased blood flow to the brainstem, and that's why those of the listeners who are practicing TM know that in your TM session, the body is more settled, the mind is more quiet. But at the same time, there's increased blood flow to the front part of the brain during TM practice. Front part of the brain, that's the organizer of the brain. It's the CEO, the boss of the brain. It's where your planning, your decision-making, your moral reasoning, your sense of self are very much dependent on activity in that area. So what we're seeing in the experience during TM, this restful alertness, there is rest, but there's heightened alertness. And it's not the alertness of doing, it's the alertness of being. What this is giving you is a fourth state of consciousness. Sleep is cleaning out sleep dirt. It's as if optimizing our current circuits. When we transcend during TM, it's a fourth state of consciousness. We're building new circuits. We're bringing that inner expansion of inner self, a universal being, into our daily activity. This is really incredible, Dr. Travis, especially, you know, sharing this finding that the rest with sleep, there's a decrease of blood flow, but there's an increase with meditation and really showing this term restful alertness, what that means. um, That's really, really fascinating. Just kind of putting this into um, a question also, one thing that I hear a lot of people talk about in consultations when it comes to the topic of sleep is that they feel that they're more of a night owl or that they have more creativity at night, that they really actually enjoy staying up. Can you speak a little bit about the connection between sleep and creativity? (laughs) There's multiple questions in your questions on creativity. First, what's the relationship between creativity and sleep? Mm -hmm. To be creative, what you need to do is think outside the box. And what is a box? That's a problem space. That's what's the issue in front of you. The four steps of creativity involve first going very deeply into the problem space and then stepping back. It's called incubation. That is, you just let the mind be open. And in this open awareness, the insight comes. So the real question is, do you have access to this insight when you're well-rested or you're not well-rested? Do you have access to this insight more than when all of the sleep dirt has been removed or when sleep dirt has been growing throughout the day? And as you can probably reason, you would have more access to that state when the body is rested, the mind is clear, it's not caught up in anxiety and issues, it's not being slowed down by sleep dirt. So sleep is important. Also what's happening here, this experience of deep inner silence that we experience during our transcendental meditation practice, that state is available between states of consciousness. So artists, scientists, inventors, Einstein, Edison are rumored that they would sit and allow themselves to drift into sleep and they would have mechanisms to wake themselves up. And by drifting into sleep, the awareness is able to get into that silence between states of consciousness and that's where the seat of creativity is. So on one level, being well-rested means that when you wake up, the mind isn't tired and groggy, but the mind is refreshed and you actually will have access to those things access to that state where the creative impulse is. Also, if during the day you're tired, what is happening is the whole ability to think globally is offline. When you're tired, you begin to have tunnel vision. 
You know what it's like. If you're tired and you have a problem, you can't think out of the box. You can't think out of the problem space. You're just caught up in all of the issues going on. So rest is very important for real free flow creativity. Now let's take the next step of your question, which is about night owls. Because many people do report, okay, 10, 11, 12, boy, that's when I can really get going. Now some of this is, is they're not being interrupted by other people. Another reason I think they feel that way is, remember, this is the pitta time mm-hmm. of night. This is a time of metabolism. And so if you're not in bed sleeping and you're awake in that pitta time, you can be caught up in that activity of thinking and processing. And you think you're doing really great stuff. Usually, though, when you do wake up in the morning, you find that it's more this churning lots of possibilities. You haven't gone more deeply into the issue. The creativity, that is the creative output you have, is not as deep, is not as expanded, is not as full as it can be. The one thing about night owls, we do have different times in our circadian rhythm. Some people, they do wake up later. Some people, they do wake up earlier, meaning that the actually rise in metabolic rate can be different. But it's important not to get caught up in being awake late at night, because what's found research after research is those people who are night owls that stay up late two, three in the morning, sleep in. What is happening? They have more issues with mental instability, psychosomatic diseases. Because what's happening is you're awake, but the body, the circadian rhythms, have their own pace. And that pace is set by the sun. So yes, you have lights around you and so on, but the actual circadian rhythm is set by the rising and falling of the sun. And so while you're working really hard, the whole physiology is functioning more slowly. And then while you're sleeping, you sleep into 10 or 11 in the morning or something. At that whole time, the physiology is more active. You're building up CO2. And if you're asleep, the in and outward breath is much softer, and you're not getting rid of the CO2 it builds up. That's why any of the listeners who reflect on, yeah, it's Sunday, I slept until noon, and I felt horrible just due to this buildup of CO2 in the body. So it's a very delicate issue that we have control over. The point you brought up of being in bed in that end of kapha time, then you're on the angel train. That's what I would tell my girls. (laughs) Then you're on the angel train, and the whole mind and body will settle in, and you can start enjoying sleep. Sleep doesn't have to be a blackout. (laughs) You can enjoy the restfulness of mind and body during that state. This is really beautiful. You know, you're talking about creating more access to the state of creativity, and that's what this neuro housekeeping, as you mentioned, is doing. And the other thing I hear you say is that whether we're awake or asleep, the circadian rhythms are still having an effect and an impact on our physiology. And by just kind of going with the cycles of nature, flowing with the cycles of nature, we allow that neuro housekeeping to do its job optimally, maximally, so we wake up rested at a very deep level. Is there any way for people to make up interrupted sleep at all? It's a big question. The research I did with Erin Feinberg, that was a question we would ask. We'd have people come in for a baseline night. We record EEG. They come in the next night, and we play cards and do puzzles, and they stay up all night. And then they come in on the third night. It's a recovery night. And what we found was the amount of delta EEG, this one cycle per second EEG, which is a marker of the deepest part, the recovery part of sleep, that was actually longer in your first sleep cycle. 
Usually a sleep cycle is 90 minutes. And what was found is if you missed the sleep the night before, that sleep cycle was longer. It could be 120 minutes. And the amount of delta EEG was even more. My feeling is you can because the brain is a river and not a rock. The brain's not a crystalline concrete structure, but it's a self-adapting organ. And when you don't get enough sleep, the body's adapting. When you get enough sleep, the body's adapting. I think we're in control here, especially with all of the insights that Maharshi Ayurveda gives us. Beautiful. And, you know, some people might think, well, if I'm meditating, then I'm getting enough rest so I can cut back on my sleep at night. What would you say to that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Again, sleep, it has a whole different function. Removing sleep dirt, neural housekeeping, take care of the day's activity. It's optimizing current circuits. The restful alertness we gain during TM practice has a whole different purpose. And if any of our listeners have been on a retreat where you actually can meditate more than just twice a day, you'll find that you're more tired than ever before. And they may be saying, well, it doesn't make sense. I'm getting 20, 40, however many more minutes of meditation time. Why am I more tired? It's because sleep is repairing the brain. TM is leading to a new experience. It's leading to an experience of the fourth state of consciousness. It's actually using brain circuits in an entirely new way. So when you do go on a retreat and you're having more of this new experience, you may need more sleep just to help recover from that process. So that's why the extended meditations during retreat are always done in a protected environment. People are cooking your food and everything's taken care of. Yes, that is one of the most lovely things to go on a retreat and really come out feeling so refreshed. You mentioned earlier, Your Brain is a River, Not a Rock. And this is actually the title of your book, Your Brain is a River, Not a Rock. And in this, you explain that the human brain is dynamically sculpted throughout our lives. And as your brain changes, so does your perception of life. And this is huge. I I just want to repeat that again. As your brain changes, so does your perception of life. How does that all work exactly? And how does it tie back into sleep? (laughs) This is a great meta question, Sankri. Thanks for bringing it up. Because we're talking a lot about the brain. And to understand, the brain is the interface between us and the world. We're not our body. We're not our thoughts. We're not our feelings. These are all changing. We are that core experience. We are that liveliness that wakes up in the morning, that wants to grow and expand. And what the brain is there for is the interface that brings in the outside world. It brings in the electrochemical activity that leads to sight and the pressure activity that leads to hearing. And the brain patterns, patterns of brain functioning over the brain, is the language that we can use to make sense of the world around us. So here we have this interface. And the unique thing about this interface is it's self-adapting. It's dynamically changing. It's not static. Every time outside information comes in in the form of sight or hearing or touch or taste, it creates a wave of activation. Brain waves go back and forth, side to side. And those circuits that are used actually get more richly connected. The input fibers multiply the output fibers. They get more areas that the input fibers can talk to. This is called the synapses in the brain. So every time we have an experience, the brain fires to give us the immediate experience, but in that process, it changes its connections. So the next time you have that experience, you'll see it more deeply, more clearly. 
Beautiful. I, l- I love this whole concept of self-adapting and that it's not static. That's just so lovely. And I'm also interested to hear what you have to say about dreaming and what you've learned about it from your research. And so I have a three-pronged question about dreaming. The first is, what's the purpose of our dreams? And the second is, is there any value in paying attention to them? And the last one is, what is lucid dreaming? I mean, usually lucid dreaming is kind of when the dreamers are a little bit aware that they're dreaming. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what that isn't? Dreaming is an inherent part of sleep. Remember, we talked about sleep stages. So first, metabolism is settling down into its lowest point. You're getting the deepest sleep. And then there's a dream period. In the dream period, activation is quite high. Breath rate, heart rate can be very high. Autonomic storms, the muscles themselves are completely relaxed, but there's all this activity going on. And what is the dreaming doing relative to sleep? What's found is both together are helping with memory consolidation, with taking the experiences we've had and putting them into long-term memory. They're also involved in what's called structured forgetting. So to our listeners, think about your day yesterday. What was the color of the shirt that your boss wore yesterday? You probably won't remember, unless they always wear a white shirt or a blue shirt. And you won't remember because it's not important. But you were there interacting with your co-workers. You were seeing them. You were responding to them. Why don't you remember it? You don't remember it because it's not a significant experience. In terms of the brain, what happens is the landing cells are where the synapse is, that part where they're landing, they're not well-developed. They're called spines. They look like little buds that grow out on the receiving part of the cell, the dendrites. And these spines are spindly. They're not fully developed. And during dreaming, waking and dreaming, those spindly cells that are not part of a deep experience actually get reabsorbed. It's structured forgetting. That is, all of the volleys of information that came in during the day, which are not necessary, are removed. And what that does, it allows more attention to complexify and to more fully integrate those experiences that were deep. So this is a purpose of currently thinking of dreaming. So structured forgetting, that is such a beautiful way to really understand this purpose of dreams. So the second part of that question was, is there a value to pay attention to our dreams? This is a hotly debated topic. Jung used dream analysis as his way to get at what is happening deep inside the individual. From the level of neuroscience, they would say, well, it's just random activation. It's actually happening during dreaming, just so you can appreciate it. During sleep, brain cells, their two raffae and local surrealis has to do with serotonin, noradrenaline. They become slower and slower and slower. And then at their slowest point, another group of cells fire as fast as they can. They're called the REM on cells. And what they do is they fire up and they activate different parts of the brain, and they fire down, and they keep any signals from leaving the spinal cord. And this is done because during dreaming, three brain areas are active. That is the emotional centers, the limbic centers, visual centers, and motor centers. So if you're sitting up in your brain, you're seeing the brain saying, run, jump, wiggle, and that goes down the spinal cord, but it never leaves, and so you're just lying there in bed. At the same time, the visual system is giving very strong deep, rich visual experiences. And the emotions are giving very highly changing, highly deep emotions. Now, what is not active is the frontal sensor. 
the social oughts and shoulds and coulds. So what's happening is you're getting an experience of raw emotions. Typically, these raw emotions are relating to what's actually ongoing. And so while it's a random activation, and so neuroscience will say, well, there's no information here. For neuroscientists, information is firing and, and stopping, bursting and stopping of brain cells. This is just almost constant as fast as it can be. It's like uh, four-year-olds who are going out on playground. Whoa, everyone's running and there's noise and there's chaos and so on. But because the brain areas that are active, the emotional center is active without the frontal executive processor there to be critical, to block things, that you might get some insight into what's going on. What is the effect of my current situation? So is there any value in paying attention to them? One could argue there is that value. The key point is don't get too caught up in your dreams because it's a different world. The rules are completely different in your dreams. You can take some insights from them, but then come back into waking state and look at them in this light of common sense. That's a great way to understand that. And it kind of goes into that last question a little bit about what is lucid dreaming and how would you define lucid dreaming? Sometimes it's understood as when you're kind of aware that you're dreaming. And what is this? What is it not? Can you talk a little bit about this? Yes. Lucid dreaming is being aware of your dreams in the dream state itself. And the brain patterns that distinguish lucid dreaming is not during the dream state itself. The period before is different. The period before, there's an extended time when it looks like you're in that underlying field of silence of being, that field that you experience during your transcendental meditation practice. And so the dream state is rising from a different state. It's rising from a state of orliness, of wholeness. And how I see lucid dream, it's metacognition in the dream world. Let me break that apart for you. Metacognition in waking is being able to be aware of the problem-solving skills and the thought processes that you're using. Lucid dreaming is like metacognition in the dream world. That is, the whole dream world is more awake to itself. Every state of consciousness has an experience or an ego, an intellect, and a mind, along with a sensory experience. Usually, the ego, intellect, and mind are completely overshadowed by the flood of dream images that are constantly changing. What's happening, I suggest this in a paper we wrote in 1994. It's a bit of Stone Age, but it's still relevant in that what is happening is the whole dream world is more awake and the dream ego is awake. That is the experiencer in the dream world. Now, is this really different than the waking ego? I think so. In this paper, we give an example of a lucid dream where a person goes into the Stanford Dream Lab. Steve LeBerge runs that. You put on glasses, and the glasses mark one of the markers of dreaming, which is rapid eye movement. And when they sense rapid eye movement, these glasses turn on this beating red light. So it's going on and off, on and off. And in your dream, you say, when I see a beating red light, I'm going to wake up in the dream. And so this happened. She woke up in the dream. She was aware that she was dreaming. She was in the dream world. She was able to change things. And in her dream, she was getting her EEG analyzed in LeBerge's sleep lab. <laughs> and then it started to rain. And then she thought, oh, no, this rain is going to destroy the EEG recording. Now, just as all of your listeners did, they smiled. It can't rain inside a lab. Dream rain can't hurt real electrodes. That's our waking intellect, using the rules of the waking state. The point is, is the dream intellect, which was awake, the dream ego that was awake in lucid dreaming, 
thought that it was a problem, thought that it was a real issue. So this is what lucid dreaming is, and it's different from a state which happens as we grow towards higher states of consciousness, in which that deep silence of the self begins to become part of our daily activity, including sleeping and waking. And there's an experience called witnessing dreaming. And in that, there's a deep, silent self which is there, almost like a silent ocean, and the dream rises up and falls. Bob Cranston looked at this empirically by asking people to describe their lucid dreams and to describe witnessing dreaming, because you can have both. And lucid dreaming was characterized by activity, by control, by intense experience. Witnessing dreaming was described as silent, whole, detached. They're completely different states. And in terms of the brainwaves, what we see is that brainwave of the transcendent, which is there in that gap before the lucid dream. When the person reports witnessing dreaming, that brainwave is in the gap and it continues throughout the dream period. And this is underlying that experience of the coexistence of silence, of being, of wholeness, even as the dream images come and go. That is such a great description. I mean, you really kind of bring out that difference between lucid dreaming and witnessing and that experience of the transcendence that just seems to continue onwards. That's really beautiful. Thank you so much. And just a question of some tips for sleep. You know, as an Ayurvedic practitioner, there are many tools and tips that we offer to clients to help them get a better night's sleep. And For me, one of the most important starting places is to help create a regular routine. That's one of the number one recommendations, just a regular routine, because this helps to bring all the doshas into balance. And so from the perspective of a neuroscientist, what do you recommend to people who are looking for a more restful sleep? Are there tips, tools, supplements, things like that that you recommend? One of the first things I do is to ask them to see a vija, identify their body type, just because sleep will be different for the different body types. But some of the points I also bring out is regular routine. That's critical because mm-hmm. we're setting up our circadian rhythms. A second is going to bed between 9.30 and 10, as we already talked about. Be lying down in that kapha time and just ride that angel train into the depth of sleep. Now there is no coffee after lunch. What happens is caffeine has a half-life of six hours, and half-life means it takes that long for half the caffeine to leave the body. What the caffeine does is it masks the natural feedback mechanism that the brain has that we've been active. So the brain is artificially kept active. So if you have coffee at, say, at 4 o'clock or maybe after dinner, that would mean at 1 or 2 in the morning you still have half of that caffeine in your body And if you do fall asleep, the sleep is not as deep. Another thing is that we can do behaviorally is turn off your electronics. What happens is circadian rhythms, I mentioned, were governed by the sun. Light comes into the eye, and there's actually a direct path from the eye to the core of the brain called the pineal gland. And when light is coming from the eye to the pineal gland, it's inhibited. It doesn't do anything. As there's less light falling on the eye, the pineal gland becomes active and it puts melatonin into the body, and that facilitates this experience of being tired. Electronics coming into the eye fool the brain. It could be midnight, but if you're looking on your computer, your brain still thinks it's 5 or 6 in the evening, and you won't get that natural feedback. So 30 minutes before bedtime, all electronics off. And if you can, especially now in the late summer, early spring, take a walk outside. 
what you're doing is you're reconnecting with nature. First, it's usually dark. All of life is settling down. You're reconnecting with the flow of life around you. And then when you come in, lie down, should be in a dark room. And Maharshi gives the recommendation, lazy lying. That is, you don't want to sit there and plan your day. You don't want to review how things went during the day because that's governed by the frontal lobes and that's going to wake you up and you're going to be completely involved. So lazy lying. So when your mind wants to engage and, and evaluate and so on, say, oh, no, no, that's for waking and just lie there and then that thought will go. And the last thing, if you find you're not falling asleep, don't get caught up in it. That is, don't get worried. Don't say, oh, I'm not going to have good sleep. I'm going to have all this sleep dirt. I'll never be good at my job tomorrow or, or a test or something. Because what that does is it artificially activates the stress response system. And again, the whole physiology now becomes active. So just lazy lying. Know that if you're lying there, you're getting good rest. I love that lazy lying because, you know, there is that tendency just to review the day and kind of plan out the next day. So I love that concept of just lazy lying. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. Well, Dr. Travis, this has been absolutely fascinating. And we also want to say, you know, like you said, it's great to see Avaidya. And for those with chronic sleep problems, it's also a good thing to check with your physician. There's so many tools and tips that are out there, and you have just brought such deep insight into the science of sleep, the mechanics of sleep, the importance of it. And I have to say, I'm very excited to go to sleep tonight <laughs> with all of this. Thank you so much. And you can find out more about all the work and research and books by Dr. Travis at drfredtravis.com. Thank you, Shankari. It's been really fun speaking with you. I especially enjoyed how you picked out the key points and you reiterated them and brought them up to your listeners. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this. Absolutely. I can't wait to go back and listen again. You've brought up so many great points. Thank you so much, Dr. Travis, for sharing this beautiful knowledge with us. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. We hope you join us next time where we will be sharing more Ayurvedic knowledge and tips for health and wellness. My name is Shankari. Until next time. This episode of Ayurveda 101 was produced by Mappy in partnership with Headquist Productions. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.